the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. Hello, goodbye. Welcome all to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and golly gee whiz, folks, do I ever feel giddy about today's podcast Mostly because it's one that I've had in the pipeline for a while now, 
uh, if I've ever needed to have some time to finish off another important episode, uh, you'll know what I mean by next week. But yeah, I've always wanted to have something really fun and interesting to come back to if I ever needed an emergency episode. So, this episode will be exploring the best of McCartney's music ever without actually having to listen to any of Paul McCartney himself. So, I guess this episode will probably be the best one for me to show my friends, which is always nice. Yes, everyone, we're going to be covering all of the best versions of Paul McCartney's music that he himself never did. Paul himself is no stranger to cover versions and his versions of A Taste of Honey, Kansas City, Hey Hey Hey, and Long Tall Sally with the Beatles feature some of his best vocal performances evs. Though, I am sure that when Paul was first belting Little Richard out there on the stage, he had no clue whatsoever that he would become one of, if not the most covered artists of the modern era. I'm sure that many of you are aware that a lot of Paul's Beatle compositions, songs like Yesterday, Eleanor Rigby, And I Love Her, and Blackbird, have been covered by everyone and their mum at this point, but... As with everything in the McCartney narrative, Beatles content always takes precedence. So, being the contrarian hipster that I am, I thought it was high time that we discussed some of the songs of his solo career that other artists found value in and took a stab at. Though, just so you know, this isn't going to be a one-off as far as I can tell, but it's also not going to be the 10 billionth side series on this show even though, honestly, it probably did start out that way. Uh, This isn't going to be a comprehensive list. This isn't going to be an official top 20 in any particular order. And this, just like the rest of the podcast, it's just going to be me exploring the world of music with you, exploring Paul McCartney's music. And these are just some of the songs I wanted to talk about. I really could have gone on forever, but even just compiling this episode now, I can tell it's going to be a long one. Of course, whenever you get into any artist, any new artist or one that you've been listening to for a while, you will inevitably start dabbling in the covers just to kind of expand your wider knowledge, especially when you start running out of fresh stuff to devour. And oh my god, there are so many Paul McCartney covers out there. Unfortunately, when you type into Google Paul McCartney covers, all of his Beatle ones come up as well. So I did have to do a little bit of digging, though quite a few of these I wanted to talk about on the show for a while. Also, just so you know, I'm mostly going to avoid any of the songs featured on the three main solo McCartney tribute albums, which are firstly, Let Us In, Americana, the music of Paul McCartney, then you have Listen to What the Man Said, and then you have The Art of McCartney. They're all really interesting albums, and I want to cover those in full in the future. So more or less all of the songs that you're going to hear today are one-offs. But before we do any of that, it's time for us to do the housekeeping. Housekeeping! Firstly, as always, I just want to thank you all for listening and downloading the episode. That is the main thing that all of you can do out there to help support the show. You know, we're all going through this really fucked up COVID-19 phase at the moment. So your support means more to me now than ever, really. And I can't believe that you would choose this show over the other millions of options you have out there with the extra free time at home you have. Please, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay hygienic. 
Now, onto the news. Yes, I don't think we've ever done a news segment on this show before. That's really more for the other podcasts. But yes, something actually happened to warrant this segment even existing. Last Saturday, at the time of recording, on the 25th of April 2020, the Beatles showed a sing-along live stream of their 1968 animated film, Yellow Submarine, on their YouTube page. Of course, I watched it, of course, I sang along, and enjoyed every minute of it. Every minute that I could, at least. I paused about halfway through to go get some drinks and some food, and as it turns out, the film was only available for the runtime of the film, so you only had 90 minutes to watch the 90-minute film, so uh, I actually had to watch the end of the film on my own DVD copy, which was both kind of rewarding and a little bit sad. But still, it was great to see the viewing figures and know that I was watching Yellow Submarine and singing along with 70,000 other people. That indeed was a trip. It's all in the mind. To commemorate the occasion and to shamelessly promote it on Twitter, uh, that's at McCartneyPod, I got my sister to take a photo of me in front of my TV holding my vinyl of Yellow Submarine, my Yellow Submarine DVD, and my Lego Yellow Submarine. It was all very silly, and I also posted it on my private Instagram page, just for the yucks, you know? Then later, a journalist from CNN contacted me on Instagram and asked if they could use my photo in a video they were doing on a report of the whole thing. I said yes, of course, and within a few hours, there I was on CNN, folks. Yes, that is real. Watch to the end of the video on the website. It's fucking me. Links down below. Totally go check it out. It's hilarious. Then, as it turns out, another journalist from CBS also contacted me about doing the same thing. Though, sadly, due to different time zones and the fact that my phone was on silent, so I didn't actually see the message, I wasn't able to say yes, and I did miss out on being truly international. But, oh well, Kate, Sarah, Sarah. Though my pride was healed swiftly after when good friend of the show Ken Michaels mentioned my CNN cameo during the new segment of his own spectacular Beatles podcast, The Things We Said Today. Thanks for that, Ken. We also have a couple of emails to read out at the top of the show this week. We've actually had a lot of positive reviews for our episode on Thrillington last week, more than we've ever had for one particular episode, which was very nice. Thank you all for that. And I just wanted to highlight one chap who's emailed in before, and he's one of our patrons. His name's Warren Butson. Shout out to Warren. He says, Hi, Sam. Well, that wordplay may well be one of your finest moments so far. Ha ha. Uh, I think that might be in reference to the fact that I was talking about people who don't like Thrillington and yet they, you know, they're like deep dive McCartney fans and my argument was that if you like Paul, you like his cheesy work, so you like mac and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who also is the part-time host of Punnit, the pun-based wordplay game show, yeah, let me just thank you for acknowledging that terrible pun there. But back to the show, he continues... Such an excellent episode on an album I had dismissed as pure Muzak rubbish. It was like being taken back to the Tate with an expert who explains the paintings and suddenly your appreciation is increased tenfold. I was not aware of Richard Hewson, so all the backstory was so fascinating to learn about with these sessions. Your guest chat was also very good as you went through the tracks. Shout out to you and Ling who joined me on the episode. I will revisit these songs again, and whilst I not may be a fan of this style... In the new light of listening to it with easy listening ears, I'm hoping I can appreciate it more. 
Thanks again for the effort put into all the research for this episode and others. You have been knocking out these episodes of late with the speed of sound, and yet the quality remains high, high, high. Great work, Mr. Wiles. Best, Warren. Yeah, more puns at the end there. What more can I say? I love it. Thank you for uh, mentioning that I've been putting the episodes out a little more regularly. I know that's been something that's been plaguing the show since its inception, but I've had all this extra time on my hands, so I have no excuse, eh, Warren? Thank you for the kind words. As ever, the uh, Thrillington episode was actually meant to be out a couple of days earlier, uh, but I actually found that Beatle fan magazine article, and then I found Ian Peel's book, The Obscure McCartney, and I couldn't not add all of that extra detail nice to know it's always appreciated speak soon Warren appreciated as always now our second email today is one that I'm reading out under the pretense of promoting the individual who wrote in but once you've read it you'll see how much of it is obviously me just going for a self-gratifying ego-driven move this is a first-time emailer his name is Colton and he says dear Sam hope you're doing well across the pond I've been a fan of the show for a while, and so I wanted to get in touch with you as you have helped inspire me to record a podcast of my own on the Travelling Wilburys. If you had the spare time to share some advice about podcasting, I would very much appreciate it. Wishing you all the best, and looking forward to the next episode of Paul or Nothing, Flowers in the Dirt, one of my favourite solo McCartney records. Cheers, Colton. (laughs) Now, already, I am... I'm blushing here, folks, because this is just a silly little podcast that I do, and obviously I'm so glad that so many of you like it and support it in the way you do, but knowing that I've, quote, inspired uh, slash tricked someone into getting into this podcasting game is is so incredibly rewarding in itself. So, yeah, that's really humbled me there. Really chuffed to read that, Colton. Though... Best of all, people, he's actually already undertaken what would have been my first piece of advice. Not only has he found a niche subject that hasn't been done before as a podcast, but he's already gone and snapped up all of the relevant social media accounts. He is now travelling Wilbury's podcast, and search optimization is key to this business. Then we had a little back and forth, and I mentioned how he should send in his thoughts about Flowers in the Dirt, which I will read out on the appropriate episode. I'm just going to thank him for that email now. I can't wait to read that one out later. But in that same email, he also put a little stinger as to what his podcast will be. And yeah, I just want to give him a little a little plug. So I'll read out his description. It reads, This is the Travelling Wilburys podcast, the first podcast dedicated to the music of the best rock and roll supergroup, the Travelling Wilburys. Every week we explore track by track the history, production and legacy of their music. We also discuss the solo careers of each of the Wilburys. So, if you're a fan of Nelson, Otis, Lefty, Lucky and Charlie T. Jr. Wilbury, a.k.a. George Harrison, Jeff Lynn, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan and Tom Petty, then please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Wilburys Podcast and, of course, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Great little write-up there, Colton. Love it. And I actually went ahead and took the liberty of listening to the very first episode of the Travelling Wilburys podcast. Uh, The episode is on Handle With Care. 
And yeah, let me just say that it is an incredibly well put together show. Not just for a first time podcaster, there are always concessions and stuff, but just in general, it's a great little show. It's short, it's sweet, and you can really tell that he and his co-host really love the music. For me, I don't know all that much about the Wilburys, just like one of the co-hosts, but it's going to be a great excuse for me to learn about them, and I just wanted to give it a plug in its infancy. Go check it out, Travelling Wilburys podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just go check it out, folks, and hey, if you do listen, maybe say hello from Paul or nothing. If you are like Warren or Colton and you, you too have something to say, then please feel free and write into the show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I want to hear your own reviews, comments on reviews that I've given in the past. I want bits of trivia and history and, of course, your own McCartney stories. Let me know about how you got into Paul, maybe a crazy story relating to Paul you've had, maybe you've met him, you play his music, whatever. I want to hear it and you know what it is. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartney Park, the central hub for the show. Check out the blog for all sorts of check out the blog for all sorts of extra bonus content. I write all sorts of, of little articles up on there. That's www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. We are back up on Facebook now. Type in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney podcast. Currently have no followers on there because Facebook went and just deleted the profile for some reason, folks. So. If you were following us on Facebook before and you can't find us, simply type it in again, have another look, we are back up and running. Same on YouTube, simply type in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. If you want to give to the show, but you are like so many other people right now going through certain financial difficulties, but there's something you want to do, then please leave us a five-star review. Maybe even write a small little paragraph about how much you like the show, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podomatic, wherever you do it. They really help out the show, and it helps connect us to other potential Paul McCartney fans out there, which is the whole point, isn't it? And last but certainly not least, if you love the show, if you like what I've been doing here, if you want to help keep the show ad-free, help keep the lights running, or even help expand the show for future episodes and stuff like that, then please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows you, the public, to support independent content creators like me. Of course, only support the show if you can, but it all goes into, like I say, the costs of running the podcast every year, the equipment, and funding certain episodes, like our yesterday reviews, some of our book reviews, and stuff like that. It all goes back into the show, folks, and like I say, I really cannot express my gratitude enough. I really can't. And of course, you also get a little shout out on the show as well. We do have one new patron this month. Thank you, Katrina S. I hope you are enjoying the show as well. You know, I would be absolutely bowled over if someone was supporting the show outside of the apocalypse. So this just means all the more to me. So yeah, thank you for that. And with that, folks, the admin is indeed over. There's no need for a preamble or anything like that. Let's just get right into things. And we're going to kick things off with the song that inspired me to start writing this episode in the first place. And this is going to be a cover from McCartney's self-titled debut album, McCartney slash McCartney One. The artist is a singer named Phoebe Snow, and here is her rendition of Every Night. Every night I 
wow. Just wow. I mean, it pretty much speaks for itself there, doesn't it? For some reason, this song only managed to get to number 37 in the UK charts, which is a bit of a shame, really, because plain and simple, this is a beautiful song sung beautifully. Many covers seek to do something needlessly wild and different, but this opening cover here today is an example of how to stay faithful to a song, focus on the best elements within it, and through doing so, elevate the material. I know this is only the first song we're going to discuss on this episode, but I think we've already found a reinterpretation that arguably already has claimed the original for its own. Arguably, anyway. It's a pretty strong damn argument, though. This cover was the opening track for her 1978 album, Going Against the Grain. However, this was not her first Beatle-based cover, as she had also covered Lennon's Don't Let Me Down on her 1976 album, the wittily titled It Looks Like Snow. Of course, the standout selling point here is her voice. And does she ever let it rip with this performance? You honestly just have to sit back and listen to it in absolute awe. Like, you totally just believe her sincerity from the moment she starts singing, and you're just there with her. The original vocal from Paul is magical, of course, because it captures him in this very quiet, vulnerable position, whereas here, Snow, through her natural powerhouse delivery, makes the song much more immediately romantic and passionate. Now yes, this does make the song a little more of a surface level, radio friendly type of cover, but by God, does she deliver it in a way that makes the song both more heartfelt and credible. Like yeah, it's a less nuanced version of this song, but there's just so much soul here, you know? I mean, I'm not saying Every Night is one of Paul McCartney's most saccharine lyrics or anything like that, but still, she manages to totally transform this song and give it a whole new meaning. Of course, it just makes sense for soul singers and R&B singers and Motown singers to cover Paul's ballads because they just translate so well to any genre of music. Again, not saying Paul does, doesn't sing his version well. Of course, Paul is a top-class singer in his own right, but Snow is just a better one. I mean, just listen to those romantic ooh-ooh-ooh segments. Your heart just melts. The production of this track is also suitably strong. The arrangement itself is pretty sparse, but you have this funky-ass bass with incredible layers of reverb that is really prominent in the mix, and... I thought that was quite a compelling move, as the original album version is not a very bass-heavy track, but then when Paul returned to it for the Wings 1979 UK tour, there is a load of bass. It is a very thudding track, so maybe there was a little bit of influence there. There's also the addition of a kind of howling, twangy, almost ethereal guitar solo that was also quite surprising, and an addition that I was not expecting from the translation from a rock song to a soul one. Normally, I would have expected it to be the other way around. Funnily enough, though, this song was first introduced to me as part of a background uh, PA soundtrack at a hotel I was working at a couple of years ago. And at first, I just thought, oh, this is a very well sung song. 
but it wasn't one that I like immediately recognised. And then you hear those ooh 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 oohs, and I was like, wait a second, that's some motherfucking Paul McCartney song. And instantly I checked the reception playlist and found out it was Phoebe Snow, and that's how we got to today's episode. But the best part that came of all of that was uh, I actually found out how to access that said playlist. And from that point onwards, I would slowly but surely every shift start to add the odd Paul McCartney and Beatles song to the playlist to just help my day go by a little bit quicker, shall we say. Anyway, back to the song itself. The reason I placed Phoebe Snow's cover of Every Night at the start of this episode wasn't just because it was the first song I found in that hotel. No. The real reason is, is because no matter where you look, whether it be, you know, forums about Beatle covers or articles on McCartney covers or discussions on solo-specific McCartney covers, covers in general, this song always crops up instantly. And even after the most cursory of glances, you'll be able to see why. This is a fantastic cover, folks. It's gone straight onto one of my personal playlists. And I can see myself humming along to this one very contently indeed. Yep, it doesn't rewrite the original or anything, but it adds a few little elements here and there, and it does make itself unique enough, but not so unique that it gets in the way of the power of Phoebe Snow's voice here. And her ability to, you know, make you well up and tug at your heartstrings is just marvellous. Moving on, and we have a song from Red Rose Speedway this time. The fellow singing is by the name of Ken Booth, and now it's time for us to hear his own version of My Love. Do it good. that just delightful everyone after coming in hot from just reviewing thrillington where i never knew i needed to hear a reggae infused reimagining of eat at home i'm just so glad i did because it meant i was in the perfect place to hear this song for the first time you know in situations like this where it's a cover of a song i'm not particularly fond of I can tend to be a little apprehensive, because you can only polish a turd so much. But the shrewd switch from one of McCartney's most syrupy saccharine wet noodle ballads into this upbeat, groovy reggae shuffle genuinely just makes the song a lot more enjoyable as far as I'm concerned. Just from a simple change in the genre, the appropriateness of the gushy lovey dubbiness of the song and its lyrics suddenly seem a lot more forgivable and appropriate and in keeping with the tone. Like, 
having that serious piano and big brass band arrangement, it just adds a seriousness that belies the silly love song, heartfelt nature of the track. So the cover we get is a lot more chill, less intense, and everything from the arrangement, the joyous delivery, the wholesome atmosphere, just makes more sense to the listener. I mean, for me, it's so much more earnest in the sense that you can feel more tender love in Booth's soft reggae tones than you do in any of Paul's trying to convince you I'm in love shouting. Released on his 1974 album, Let's Get It On, this song came out just under a year after the original My Love had reached number one in the US and nine here in the UK. Of course, this is peak reggae period for the McCartneys, who had been a fan of the genre ever since their holiday to Jamaica in 1968. Now, reggae would be a genre that Paul would have Wings experiment with on and off to varying degrees of success in the early 70s. But since I know that Paul commissioned slash asked people to sing his songs, as well as taking outside offers, it makes me wonder whether Paul was trying to surreptitiously experiment with his own songs without have to actually do it himself. Again, a bit like Thrillington, you know, Paul wants to see if his songs work well in reggae, and Ken Booth absolutely proves that. Though perhaps a little too well, as it was around this period that Wings would stop working with reggae altogether. Perhaps Ken Booth was so successful with this cover that Paul rather like George Harrison with the sitar, learnt firsthand that he would never be able to do a genre as good as the originals, and instead would simply fall back on rock and roll. Again, we have some more pretty killer bass in this track. We're going to see this throughout this episode, though, because obviously any studio session musician that knows they are covering a Paul McCartney song is going to make sure they do their damnedest to play that bass part exceptionally well. So yeah, My Love by Ken Booth. This is another one, folks, that I am completely gushing over. This cover put a big, stupid grin on my face. It is just so full of goofy joy, and it's sung so well. And it does such a good job of understanding what the song probably should have been, that, again, it's another song for me that almost completely replaces the original. And on to our third song now, we're going to hear a performance from an artist who may at one time have been more popular than Paul ever was. His name is Michael Jackson, you may have heard of him, and we're going to hear his version of Girlfriend from 1978's London Town. What we're doing, yeah. 
So after our Pipes of Peace part one episode, I knew that I would eventually be returning to the former king of pop, specifically because of this song. And let's just say I always knew I was going to be placing this song early in the episode. This was because I remembered, or at least I thought I remembered, not liking this song at all. But coming back to it for this episode, I felt like it was pretty damn good. I mean, the Wings original is hardly the greatest song to top ever, but... Rather like Phoebe Snow, we have another top-tier singer here, taking Macca's material and making it make much more sense. Taken from his hugely successful 1979 album Off The Wall, unlike other covers here, this wasn't some cynical rush by producers to smash out a pre-existing hit. I mean, this is Girlfriend after all. Instead, and more importantly, this cover would be the start of a relationship between McCartney, MPL and Quincy Jones that would culminate with Paul appearing on Thriller and Jackson on Pipes of Peace. And to Jones's credit, if he was looking specifically at a post-Beatle McCartney composition, then he really could not have done a better job, because I cannot think of a single song up until this point in McCartney's discography that would be more appropriate for Jackson. Firstly... Jackson is actually still being marketed towards teenage audiences who actually have things like boyfriends and girlfriends rather than wives and mortgages. So indeed, it is much more age-appropriate in that sense. More importantly, though, it's the overall tone of the song and the register and delivery of the vocal melody. Again, they're just so much more suited to Jackson's style and persona. And whilst Macca's original vocal performance, his falsetto on the London Town version of Girlfriend, is novel and is quite impressive in its own right, the fact that Jackson is able to do it naturally and without straining his voice means that, oddly enough, you're actually able to take a song like this, which is very lightweight, a little more seriously. Which I know sounds so stupid, but I just mean it in the sense that Macca's definitely affecting a style here, whereas like this is Jackson's style. This cover is also quite a bit shorter than the original, mostly because they get rid of the infamous Rocky Middle Eighth Bridge bit found in the Wings original. This change I only, I only bring up because it is kind of funny that the only reason Paul added that little Rocky breakdown was to appear a bit cooler and rock and roll, and yet we have Michael Jackson here, who arguably is more popular than Paul at this point, but he's so pre-beat it and bad and thriller that arguably the only cool and interesting part of a song had to be removed so he could still be marketed to teenagers in the right way. 
Either that or Quincy Jones just thought it was the worst part of the song. I just think that's really funny. So overall, this is just another case of a better singer just doing one of Paul's songs better than he ever could. But not all of that is Paul's fault. By all rights, no man nearing his 40s should ever be singing a song like Girlfriend, really. So it doesn't feel all that inappropriate for Jackson to just come in and sweep this one out from under McCartney's feet. But we all know Jackson had a good hand in doing things better than McCartney, including making it to number one in the 80s and music publishing rights. On to our fourth song now, in fourth position, and we've got one that proves just how massive Paul McCartney and Wings were in Japan, despite the fact that they cancelled two consecutive tours there. This is Jet from Band on the Run, and we're going to hear it performed by a group called Shonen Knife. certainly was something. Now, this cover did have somewhat of an uphill struggle with me for the fact that Jet is easily in my most overplayed wing songs ever. But not only that, I had no idea who Shonen Knife were. And from what I've gathered, they are a pretty massive pop-punk trio from Japan. Uh, turns out they actually supported Nirvana on their 1993 UK tour after Cobain saw them live uh, one time. And he's quoted as describing his reaction as being like a screaming girl at a Beatles concert, which is quite interesting. When Shonen Knife aren't performing as Shonen Knife, though, they are also Japan's number one Ramones tribute act called the Osaka Ramones. So these gals certainly know something about cover versions. This cover of Jet was taken from their 2008 album Supergroup, so they've been going for like 30 years by that point, and yeah, this is their style, really. This song is exactly what you'd expect from an all-female pop-punk trio from Japan. It's presented to us in this very stripped-down, dirgy fashion, yet the whole thing is still incredibly chirpy and upbeat, with the vocals being real bright bubblegum. It's fun and charming enough the first time around that you hear it as this, you know, quirky little oddity, but heartless as it sounds to say this, I lost interest in it pretty damn quickly. Objectively, this is a rather dull and unadventurous interpretation of the material. Yes, I know they are only a three-piece band, and that comes with its own limitations, and hey, maybe they want to play exactly what they perform on the album live, but even as a guy who doesn't particularly like Jet, I know that 
Despite being quite a simple melody, a large part of its appeal is a vast array of instrumentation and its incorporation of intricate arrangements and the fact that it's all held together by the stellar production. And this cover just has none of that. I know it's going for a genre that I don't particularly have all that much interest in, you know, kind of pop punk. It all feels a bit rudimentary and simple. And I wish it was just a little more explorative. Like we've spoken about bands that will pick up on a certain point and expand upon it. And that will be the real interesting standout difference between two covers. Whereas here they seem to have removed all the fun little bells and whistles and simply relied on McCartney's vocal melody here, which is one that, personally, I don't rate all that highly. So, yeah, not too much to say on this one, unfortunately. It sadly fails to do anything particularly new or interesting, and instead they take this classic rock staple and force it into something very one-note and atonal. It, it really misses the mark, in my opinion. I mean, I didn't know anyone could do Jet in a way that I personally found less interesting, and yet here we are. So, well done. Following on, and we have the first song on this list that is taken from an actual covers album, although not from a McCartney-specific compilation. It's also the first song not to be taken from a studio album either. The tune is Mullican Tire, and the group taking on this titan of a tune is Brotherhood of Man. I've always known about Brotherhood of Man as this vocal group from the past that always seems to exude stinky cheese whenever I get anywhere near them. But I never knew it went so far as the Brotherhood of Man actually taking part in the 1976 Eurovision Song Contest. And for my American listeners, let me just clarify one thing. Unless you are ABBA, the Eurovision Song Contest is a death sentence to any legitimate, credible music career. Now, it seems that Brotherhood of Man may have gotten away with it more than other artists did. Although, by the time we get to this particular recording, Brotherhood of Man had risen, fallen, risen and fallen again, with this song being taken from the first of three consecutive all-covers albums that the band put out in the early 80s in a desperate bid to try and win back some public favour. Though this first covers album would essentially be their last chart success, and, ironically, one of their swan songs would be Mull of Kintyre, 
aka the most successful single of all time at that time. Don't forget that, folks. In 1980, when this was recorded, Wings held the world record for the biggest selling single of all time. Yeah, and Wings weren't a proper rock band. Okay, back to the song, though, because this is clearly another one of those cases where you can probably tell I'm just talking around the, the subject because the song itself doesn't interest me all that much. I mean, this is coming from a pop group, you know, recording 20 other cover songs on, on an album, so there's hardly going to be that much thought put into each composition, and each song will probably have one, maybe two takes done in a real one-and-done rush job, which inevitably results in the safest and tame covers that we've come across so far. Uh, I mean, it's so boring that it's almost offensive. Like, I'm not saying it's particularly bad or anything. They sing it well, and it's got a solid pop production. But it's literally just note-for-note note of Kintyre again, to the point whereby it barely even counts as a cover it changes that little. I mean, you half expect to see a music video where they're on the beach with the Campbelltown Pipe Band. But in a world where a covers album seemingly could get you quite high up the charts, uh, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on this one. It does seem to be more of a product of its time. Though Brotherhood of Man, on their final album, um, a semi-live album from 2002 called The 70s Story, they would also do a cover of Live and Let Die. And typically, whilst I would normally play the audio, just based on the one minute that you heard of Mull of Kintyre, you can guess with 100% accuracy what the cover of Live and Let Die would have sounded like. Our next song, though... <clears throat> Our next song, though, is a lot more intriguing. It's a track that I've been looking forward to sharing with you for a while now, and I knew that if we were ever going to delve into the world of covers, that this would be one that I, you know, I just had to bring up, because it's just so fucking weird. It defies any reason or logic, and in many ways, it's everything I could ever want from a Paul McCartney cover. None surprisingly, the song is The Ever Odd Temporary Secretary from McCartney 2, which is also our quasi-theme song, and the artists doing the cover are Donnie Who Loved Bowling, which is a great name. Uh, let's have a listen. Mr. Marx, can you find for me Someone strong and sweet fitting on my knee She can keep her job if she gets it wrong Ah, but Mr. Marx, I won't need her long All I need is help for a little while We can take dictation and learn to smile And a temporary secretary what I need for to do the job Anita. 
Perhaps I can pay her well If she comes along and can stay a spell I will promise now that I'll treat her right And will rarely be there till late at night Yeah, I know, right? What the hell was that? Well, folks, that is what you get when you take one of the strangest songs in McCartney's songbook and let two equally strange fellows do whatever the hell they want with the material. Now, I've absolutely no idea who Donnie Who Loved Bowling are, but I'm guessing their name is a reference to the character Donnie from the Coen Brothers comedy that's not that funny, The Big Lebowski. From what I've seen and heard, though, they appear to be a very unconventional outfit indeed. I've seen one of their live shows on YouTube with a slightly bigger band, and it's clear that they are mostly interested in experimental soundscapes and even dabbling in almost anti-music. And of course, that clearly carries over into the song you just heard there. They are also clearly huge Beatle fans, as even the album this song comes from, uh, the simply titled Covers from 2008, actually has a cover that is a parody of the original Butcher cover for Yesterday and Today. Also on the album, they cover Yoko Ono's own song, Mrs. Lennon. So clearly these guys both love their Beatles deep cuts and know what they're talking about. As you heard a few moments ago, this cover is split into two distinct parts, with the first being almost Gregorian chant-style vocals during the verses, and then the experimental hard rock stuff during the chorus. There are also these fun little breakdowns where it's just the drum track, and again, they're, they're just going crazy with those distorted vocals. As a contrast between the two main sections, though, it perfectly captures the madness of McCartney. Though, I only wish that they flowed a little more naturally together. Of course, this could also be paying homage to the way that Paul can stitch two disparate song fragments together, and it's cool that they might be doing that within the one song, rather than joining two others together, but the fact of the matter is, it just doesn't blend smoothly, and you know they aren't able to pull it off with the might of Paul McCartney, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, so which of course is a totally reasonable criticism on my part. Of course these guys don't have the same production quality of Paul either, but that was entirely intentional. And in a way, it almost mimics the very homemade nature of McCartney too. This results, this results in a song that could not be less conventional, and it's just jarring to listen to no matter what point of the song you join in. It's almost like it's trying to dare you not to like it. Like, everyone who says that they like Temporary Secretary like me, who says that they like the weird, mad Professor McCartney stuff, well, these guys are putting that to the test. And I find that really admirable. And, if nothing else, the song is just appropriately silly and all over the place and disjointed. And that really captures the right feel of Macca. And for something as self-aware as this, I think that's all it ever really had to do. Pressing on, and we have a cover where you would not be able to work out which particular song is being covered until about five minutes into the track. The tune in question is Silly Love Songs from Wings at the Speed of Sound in 76, and it's being performed to us today by Red House Painters. Let's have a listen. Thank you. 
Now that was something different indeed, wasn't it, folks? That was taken from the band's 1996 album, Songs for the Blue Guitar. And just so you know, that clip was actually after said lengthy five-minute intro that I just mentioned. So just to show you how different the rest of the song is, I'll play you what plays for the first five minutes. Let's just have a little sample now. And for any Neil Young fans out there, you may be forgiven for assuming and confusing that opening part with his own song Cortez the Killer from his own 1975 album Zuma. And just to reiterate the point, I'm going to play a clip of that song right now. Really, these are almost identical folks. Yeah, that's more than a passing similarity, but I really should focus on the song itself, because by golly, did this one stand out to me as one of the more interesting of the bunch? Because we've already looked at some of these genuinely pointless covers, and with some of them, you, you generally start to wonder what the point of booking that studio time was for in the first place. However, that's not the case here. With Red House Painters, we actually have a cover version that is impressively brave. So brave, in fact, that it chooses not to rest on the recognisable, beloved coattails of the Silly Love Song's bassline or vocal harmonies. It's like trying to do a cover of Norwegian Wood without the sitar, or You Gave Me the Answer without making it Granny Muzak. And I just love the balls behind such a move. This isn't him taking some obscure 80s McCartney album track and warping it into something a little less commercial. This is staple household name type of song, Silly Love Songs, and stripping it clean for spare parts and turning it into something totally unrecognisable. It also creates this really interesting juxtaposition between those really upbeat and peppy lyrics and now this incredibly foreboding, dark, joyless tone, which is something that I'm far more used to seeing in my Tom Waits podcast, Down in the Hole, and it's something that McCartney rarely ever uses. It's normally happy words with happy music or sad words with sad music. This song works because it is the most extremely serious, emotionless thing ever put to tape, and yet it's supposed to be, quote, silly love songs. It's such an engaging dichotomy, and how can you not admire such an artistic abomination? 
There are going to be many songs on this list today where I say that they do something different, but I really don't think any of them are going to be as, quote, different as this one. Yeah, it's not exactly the most fun cover that you're going to whack on your playlist and listen to at the drop of a hat, but if we're talking about people that actually went out there and did something artistic and took a chance and didn't just give us the same song again, then this has to be one of the best examples. Because you would have never have expected this from silly love songs. But what's wrong with that? Next up, though, we do have a song that already might try to rise to the challenge in terms of being the weirdest piece of music we've heard on this episode so far. I only discovered this one a few days ago, but I'm already extremely hyped to talk to you about it. I've listened to it absolutely non-stop ever since. This is another song from McCartney 2. This is coming up by Max Tundra. Here we go. Yes, folks, things are not going to get any less bizarre. That indeed was another completely unexpected cover version that I, for one, did not see coming up at all. I mean, I'd like to think that I don't shock easily, especially in terms of music, but this song was indeed incredibly shocking for me. It was terrifying, as I'm sure it was for many of you listening now. Though I, for one, do enjoy being horrified within the safety of my own home, and as with silly love songs that we just heard previously, I am naturally drawn to these discordant, unharmonious sorts of music that any sane person would probably just turn off immediately. But what this song does exceptionally well is evoke the same chaotic mood and experimental atmosphere that made up the McCartney 2 sessions, only even more legitimately insane. The cacophony of atonal, garbled vocals mixed between layers of confrontationally high-pitched and piercing synths, as well as the repetitive faux 80s tape loops and archaic keyboard sounds, are a wonderfully accurate approximation of the soundscapes that McCartney may have been working on had he made McCartney 2 in the present day. This means for me, despite how different the version is and how unfaithful it can be in terms of its presentation, tonally and thematically it is incredibly faithful to the vision of Mad Professor McCartney. 
Though I shouldn't do this song a disservice. It's not a random collection of sounds, and it's not some experimental collage like Revolution 9. This is still a proper song, and an incredibly hypnotic one at that. Like I say, I've lost myself in this track several times, where the five-minute runtime just flies by. And I know some of you probably think that I'm being confrontational or contrarian or that I'm joking, but I'm not. This song was electric to me, no pun intended. And the whole thing puts you on alert and it wakes you up and you've got no choice but to absorb all of the different things going on in the song. And if you listen closely, you can pick up on certain elements that are actually taken directly from the original coming up. Like you can hear some of the twangy, Talking Head style staccato guitar. You can definitely hear that in the background as well and, and some of the original synths. So I am leaning towards the fact that maybe Max Tundra did a bit of a remix first. Maybe he was messing around with it. He built this song around it. Who is Max Tundra? Well, Max Tundra is the pseudonym alter ego for Ben Jacobs. Yes, this is going to be the first of our Thrillington-esque alter egos on this episode. Ben Jacobs is an English DJ, multi-instrumentalist, producer sort of chap, and he did loads of remixes for modern British pop acts. So, so yeah, that does make me lean towards the idea that this was maybe an experiment that grew into something a little greater. Uh, obviously, this is a guy who knows why that song works well, and he was able to build something incredible out of it. But in my own internal logic, I like the idea that maybe, like McCartney 2, this was a bit of a happy accident. As a final aside, this only came out in 2006 exclusively on a 12-inch vinyl disc release with two of the songs that aren't Paul McCartney, so I won't go into detail. But yeah, that is another rare vinyl find for me to spend too much money on eBay someday. Looking forward to that. Out of all of the songs that we've covered so far, folks, this is the song that is easily the most fresh to my ears. This has been immediately added to my favourite covers of all time, my favourite McCartney covers. And if this song was available on Spotify, you know I'd be streaming it all day as well. I know I'm slightly biased because I'm such a huge McCartney 2 fan, but, you know, for all those naysayers who thought that Paul went too far with that album... Just look at what this guy's done. Like, this is incredible. And, again, really brave, really different, really out there, really good. The song we're going to discuss next, though, is one that I've probably got the longest standing history with. Me and this song go way back. You know, this is a song I used to listen to on my dad's first-generation iPod on our holidays, like, 15 years ago. So, again, be warned, there may be some biases ahead. This is another non-album single, but it's not just any non-album single. This is the one that was nominated for an Oscar and scored a bloody Bond film. You know which one it is. It's Live and Let Die from 1973, but this time it's being brought to us by Guns N' Roses. Kick it! Live and let die. Live and let die. 
For those of you who have been listening to the show for a while, you may have come across my sentiments towards this song already, and to save you any of the laborious research, the long and the short of it is that I consider this to be not only one of the greatest solo McCartney covers, but in general one of the greatest cover versions of all time. Right here, right now folks, I am not ashamed one iota to admit that I unequivocally prefer the Guns N' Roses version of Live and Let Die to the Wings version. They own it. And I'm saying that as the host of a Paul McCartney podcast. You know, we can all be mature here, can't we? We, we, You know, let's all try and be grown-ups. This is in the exact same way that I have to accept that Stevie Wonder's version of We Can Work It Out is better than the Beatles version. Come on, let's all live in reality, everyone. This Titanic cover version is taken from the band's 1991 album, Use Your Illusion 1, and they would go on to do another pretty famous cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door on the sequel album, Use Your Illusion 2, released the same year. And just like that cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door, what Guns N' Roses seemingly do so well is take songs that have an element of rock at their core magnify that 50-fold, and then let Axel shriek with all of his might over the top of it. Gone are any of the pop elements of Live and Let Die here, as is the reggae middle eighth and all of those brass flourishes. Everything's just been replaced here by this thunderous hard rock soundscape. And one of the most impressive parts of this entire composition is how they fill all of that space just from the sounds of this five-piece rock band. Of course, they would go on to use orchestras in songs like November Rain, but here, they don't need any of that, and instead we get an even more intense rush of excitement with less moving parts. Like, we all love the riff to live and let die with the orchestra going back and forth, back and forth, and it's all very exciting, but... When Slash plays it on his guitar, isn't it just infinitely more exciting and thrilling? And it it just starts melting your skin off. It's so awesome. I mean, more than anything, this cover makes me appreciate Martin's contributions to Live and Let Die all the more. Because when you go back and listen to the Wings band rock version of this song, which doesn't have the orchestrations then you really start to appreciate how much of a boost McCartney needed with that song from Martin to kind of make it into the classic it was, because it's the parts that Martin added that Guns N' Roses used and cannibalised to turn Live and Let Die into this hard rock stadium filler that we know it as today. But yeah, Guns N' Roses were the kings of stadium rock, so it is to be expected. And I've also got to give a huge shout out to Axel Rose, who 
screams this song with the balls and lungs that Paul, even in his heyday, could only have dreamt of doing. Axel's vocal range here and his immense power is the perfect complement to this track. And when he's holding those long-ass notes, you, you just can't help but be in awe. All in all, I've laid my cards on the, on the table already with this one. This is my favourite cover version of this episode and one of my favourite covers of all time. And again, it's just one of those examples where a band will find something good that Paul did in a song and then just focus on that because that's their thing. You know, Guns N' Roses are this heavy rock, hard rock band and they've brought that to one of Paul's most famous rock songs. They've reappropriated it, they've modernised it. And whilst this cover does remind me in parts of how excited I got whilst I was watching Paul live doing Live and Let Die, but guns here, they just make the song even more exciting. I, you know, I, I can't say it any clearer than that. They, they just make it better. Next up, not only do we have a song from possibly my favourite solo McCartney album, but we also have one of my favourite all-time out-there showmen performing it. Today, we have the one and only Mr. Screaming Jay Hawkins with his delightful cover of Monkberry Moon Delight. Ba 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 da. quite funny that I should be talking about a Screaming Jay cover on a podcast again because I actually did something similar on uh, an episode of my Tom Waits podcast down in the hole that I never mentioned where I was doing a bunch of Tom Waits covers and Screaming Jay actually did renditions of Waits' own Ice Cream Man and Whistling Past the Graveyard and now that I think about it I really should have used those two songs as reference points and examples for gauging my own expectations with this one. Like I alluded to, this was a cover that I was quite invested in at the start. When I first saw that this existed, I thought, oh wow, what a truly serendipitous pairing. I love Screaming Jay, and I love Paul. And so, I really couldn't picture how this combination was ever going to be anything other than awesome. And whilst I'll say that, I do have a kitsch ironic, sarcastic attachment to this song, which means I will never truly dislike it, and I do listen to it for a twisted kind of pleasure. Uh, that's not what I wanted, and it's a massive step down from the kind of song that potentially feasibly could have been made here. Mostly because Ram is an album that is noted in the history books for being the album where McCartney is attempting to deliver unto us the Abbey Road levels of production and sound quality. And here with Screaming Jay, that's all replaced with a very slapdash, 
thrown together, that'll do, it'll be alright on the night, I guess, we'll fix it in post-attitude. The instrumentation is incredibly minimal and unexplorative, like they're just doing the basic notes here, there's, there's no attempt to uh, noodle or explore or experiment. There's little to no work in post, like I, I can't hear any overdubs or extra layering of instruments that aren't there live in the studio in the first take. And worst of all, and I don't think I've ever come across this in a cover before, but Screaming Jay can't even sing the fucking lyrics properly, and it's really, really weird. Now, from what I can gather from what I've been able to source, Screaming Jay only did this song because McCartney was a huge fan and really, 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 really wanted him to do it. I'm guessing that this means Paul possibly gave it to him, slashed, coerced him into doing it. And whilst this does appear on his 1979 album, Screaming the Blues, that whole album was taken from many recordings across the 70s. So I'm going to assume it was probably closer to 1971, the year Ram actually came out, rather than 1979. Hey, maybe even perhaps... Paul was with Screaming Jay Hawkins in New York or LA at the time, so maybe the dates could line up there, if only I knew more about Screaming Jay's life. Anyway, the story goes that apparently Screaming Jay didn't really want to do this song at all because he interpreted the, the lyrics as a drug song, and apparently he didn't do drug songs, even despite the fact that the most famous story about I Put a Spell on You, his most famous song, is that he was blackout drunk when he did it. So I'm guessing he maybe changed the lyrics, perhaps, so that it wouldn't be the kind of song that he thought it was. But even then, he was so uninterested anyway that he only did one take of the track. So perhaps that explains the errors in the lyrics, amongst other things, I suppose. Honestly, everyone, this one was such a letdown for me. It let me down, and the lack of effort on... Everyone's part of this production is just too obvious not to notice. If they'd spent any more time on it, maybe even five more minutes or a second take, they may have actually been able to figure out what makes Monkberry Moon Delight the killer track that it is in the first place. Good trivia, bad song, tale as old as time. However, our next song is one that I had absolutely no prior investment in whatsoever. This is the first of our live covers, and this is a run-through of Let Me Roll It, another track from 73's Band on the Run, and it's being brought to us courtesy of the Jerry Garcia Band.
This performance was taken from Pure Jerry, Bay Area, 1978, which is a live album made up of four shows that they did in San Francisco that same year. The fact that Jerry is playing this particular song five years after it came out, though, shows that it must have actually had a true resonance with him, as Wings were well and truly on their way back to being uncool as fuck again by this point. Garcia, of course, coming from the Grateful Dead pedigree, could have helped out with this in some way, and maybe this cover was part of that. Now, whilst I don't know for sure why Garcia chose Let Me Roll It, what he did with it was surprisingly moving for me. Again, this is not a song that I'm the biggest fan of, and a lot of that stems from how Paul overuses it as a go-to rocker and a chance for him to show off his wanky guitar riffing skills live. But here, Garcia doesn't do any of that, thankfully, and despite being an incredibly adept guitarist in his own right, he brings the song down to an almost gospel-like atmosphere, and he gets rid of all that boastful guitarmanship, and instead we're just left with this tender, vocally-driven song that is as close to the magic of the Wings core trio of vocal harmonies that I've ever heard in one of these covers. And when I say gospel, I do really mean it, because this is such a beautiful hymn. And it even has the appropriate organs in the background. Though, interestingly, again, it gets rid of the main riff of the song. You know, the... We don't get any of that. And for me, this proves that, again, whilst Paul is known as Mr. Melody Man, who, you know, is a good lyricist but doesn't believe in himself, it's clear that the reason a significant number of these artists are choosing these particular songs and they're not doing the riffs is because, in fact, they are affected by Paul's lyrics. And here when his words are being delivered by these guys and gals, then they are even more emotive. I know we talk about Paul smoking too much weed on this show, but if I had to pick one cover today that was inspired by the green herb, it would definitely be this one. And you never know, the reason this song may be so stoned out of its mind is because the performers performing it subscribe to the theory that it's actually about Paul rolling a joint to John Lennon as a peace offering. But I wouldn't change anything about the atmosphere. It's just so inclusive and welcoming and inviting, just like many of the best moments on Band on the Run, like, you know, Mrs. Vanderbilt or Mamunia. You really want to be there, singing this hymn with them in that smoky haze. And fortunately, you get to spend 11 minutes with them singing this song here. They really stretch it out, and, you know, it's a, it's a McCartney cover, so... The use of the word indulgent is pretty redundant, really, isn't it? In summary, this is a song that I like probably more than I should, but I'm sensing a bit of a naturally evolving theme this episode, where I'm warming to covers of songs that I was never fond of in the first place, so we'll see where it goes. Following on, and we have our first repeat song today, though I was surprised to see just how many people have covered this album track that was never a single. Once again, we have... Every Night from McCartney slash McCartney 1 in 1970. And this time we're going to hear it from a little known outfit called Suburban Skies. Every night I just want to go out, out of my head. 
day I don't want to get up Get out of my bed Every night I want to play out Every day I want to do But tonight I just want to stay in So yeah, this group is called Suburban Skies, and if you haven't already gotten the clever Penny Lane reference, this is specifically a Beatles cover band, and this cover is from a whole album of covers simply titled Paul, which came out back in 2009. Unsurprisingly, they have similar albums called John, George and Ringo. Thank God I don't do a Ringo Starr podcast. Now, on more typical covers albums like this one, you're more than likely going to have a mixture of faithful covers and more experimental ones that might try and, you know, reinvent the wheel. And, by God, is this one squarely in the former. Like, they don't do anything bad per se, there's there's no poor musicianship or anything, but this is so by the numbers that I can barely keep my eyes open. There isn't anything unique to distinguish it from the original, nor anything that would indicate that it sounds anything different from a million other cover bands that would have churned out this exact cover of Every Night. I mean, there's a little bit of scratchy guitar at the start of the track that I quite liked, and the drums could have gone somewhere a little more interesting. They kind of teased me into thinking that they were, but that's basically about it. I mean, I know there's an element that maybe the group wants to just do a faithful cover of the song. They really like Every Night, they're covering it, maybe they just want to put their own slight twist on it. But as far as I'm concerned, that's all well and good for a live show. But in the modern age of streaming, what's the point in doing a song that sounds like the original when the original is only three seconds away at the click of a button? I know it's very hipster, first world, a very millennial stance to have, but it's how I feel about covers. Again, go look at We Can Work It Out by Stevie Wonder and you'll see what I mean. I also can't avoid talking about the vocals in this one. Just compare them to Phoebe Snow's and it's it's apples and oranges by this point, especially during the ooh, 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 ooh segments. And yeah, it's kind of unfair to compare one to the other, but... One works and one doesn't, and you don't get points for trying in the covers game. So yeah, not the best song. I uh, I am really trying hard not to go in too hard on it. It, it. it really didn't interest me at all, folks. I didn't think it was very good at all. But you know what, though? Since they've got a whole album of these covers, and considering the fact that I'm highly unlikely to review it in full at any other point in time, I'm going to give these guys another chance. Let's see if there's anything else on their album, Paul, where they've put something together with a a bit more panache. And what song have I chosen? Well, since I'm letting Suburban Skies have another go, I thought it would be rather poetic that we should hear their rendition of Letting Go from 1975's Venus and Mars. Let's get going. (laughs) 
such a human being so divine oh she feels like sun mother nature look at what she's done oh oh i feel like letting go Okay, now there we go. That was much better, wasn't it? I mean, you could tell just immediately that there was so much more care and thought put into this cover than the last song. And I don't just mean that in the sense that it's not just another carbon copy of the original track. There is a nuance here and an understanding of craft that allows them to create something very familiar that still feels incredibly fresh. This is an interpretation that I am so fond of that I actually kind of wish that Wings had done it themselves. Of course, Letting Go was a song that had always been the highlight rockers from Venus and Mars that was made for the upcoming world tour, Wings Over the World, Wings Over America. But rather than that rocker being put into the set list, this version here would have been a perfect substitute for putting it into the acoustic set in the middle of the show. Like, could you imagine that? But yeah, by turning a song that is primarily an acoustic guitar rocker into this Mediterranean-infused acoustic somber style, you know, of a, making it very much more of a, a slow, erotic dance song, means it suddenly takes on an incredibly unique and distinct life of its own. The mood is just so romantic, and the addition of a, a male-female vocal arrangement only intensified that for me. Like, the song almost became a dialogue between two lovers, and I couldn't help but reinterpret the lyrics in a whole new way, which is exactly what I want from these kinds of covers. Speaking of said vocals, though, I can hardly believe that this is the same group singing, because all of a sudden we go from this really amateurish, unambitious performance of Every Night to this genuinely haunting, arresting, cavernous vocal that brings such a gravitas to the lyricism. Again, another quite standard McCartney set of lyrics in the hands of another group have found new meaning and poignancy. Also, quick aside, a constant guilty pleasure of mine, folks, has always been the use of claves or claves in a song. I love me a bit of the claves, and this song has some killer claves all over it. In conclusion, an impressive improvement from the previous outing, Suburban Skies. And yeah, I know I'm the one structuring the tracks here, but... I thought it would be fair to highlight the fact that just because a band do one shitty cover, it doesn't mean that they can't do something amazing down the line. And I think this is an amazing cover of Letting Go. Our next song truly is a last minute addition to this list, but I simply could not resist. It was futile. This is Bit Bop from 1971's Wildlife, and the singer is Patrick Zabe or Patrick Zarby. Take it away, Patrick. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think we all know why I included that. Because it was fucking awesome. Yes, that exactly that's why. Of course, this is, has, and always will be a pro-bip-bop podcast. And it is out of this world that such a good cover of that song exists. But yeah, this episode was originally only meant to be like 15 songs, I think. But And even then, that was after I cut the original list down from like 50 covers. Like, it was far too ambitious. But whilst I was editing this actual episode... That song you just heard popped into my earphones, and I had to ensure that it was going to be included on this episode. Come on, how could you not love that cover of Bip Bop? Come on. This is from Patrick Zabe, Patrick Zabe, like I say, a French-Canadian singer who, after a quick discog search, also released two other covers of Beatle tunes. Now, from the fact that we just heard him do Bip Bop, and his other two covers were Obladi, Oblada, and Oh Darling, we can quite rightly assume that he was a proper McCartney man. He'd probably like this podcast. This was originally issued as the B-side to one of his 1972 singles, Un peu d'amour beaucoup de haine, or de haine. I'm sorry if I, if, I, if I butchered the French there. I'm not going to try and repeat it. Compositionally, this song is note for note what we get on Wildlife, but done in a slightly better studio and not done in two takes, which is nice. But I guess I should really point out why I feel that a song like this, that admittedly doesn't do anything particularly new, is good, and why other equally unexplorative and by-the-numbers covers don't work for me. Well, truthfully, a big part of it is that I simply love Bitbop and I have my own biases, but the main point is that this whole arrangement is a delightfully unobtrusive, genuine continuation of the sounds that we experienced on the original Bitbop on Wildlife. It's so incredibly sonically faithful that you can tell that everyone involved just wanted to achieve an exact replica. Not just them playing it with the exact same chords in the right way, and then it just sounds the way it sounds wherever they record. No, no, this is literally them recreating Bitbop note for note. And it felt incredibly nostalgic for me, especially because it retains that same carefree whimsy that made me fall in love with the original in the first place. But let's cut the bullshit here. The lion's share of why I like this song so much and why it was so immediately fun for me, and perhaps for, for many of you just now, is the fact that I'm in total blissful, willful ignorance of what the singer is actually saying Now, I assume he's singing an approximation of Paul McCartney's lyrics, but how well do nonsense songs translate across language barriers? It's quite interesting. Regardless, though, the effect is all the same as, you know, because Bitbop didn't even mean anything in the first place anyway. Like, it was just nonsense language. So doing it in a tongue that I simply cannot understand in any way is both really kind of what the song kind of should have been in the first place, and in some ways it achieves what the original Bitbop doesn't, but most importantly, most viscerally and most explosively, the main reason I liked it is just because in my own silly, immature, childish way, the fact that I can't understand what he's saying in a nonsense song was really funny. So yeah, I'm not going to overthink this one too much, I just wanted to slip it into the episode for you folks. I really enjoy it, I'm going to definitely add it to my playlist, I hope you enjoyed it too. Moving on to our penultimate song now, and we have a cover that I have have known about secretly and wanted to share with you on the podcast for a while, possibly several years now. This is a cover that 
I listen to in my own time probably just as much as the Ram original and the Thrillington remake. This is Monkberry Moon Delight by Club Helmbreaker featuring Rylan Rahim. Let's hear it. Did you guys hear that? Did you did you hear that? Oh my gosh. But yeah, just when you thought I couldn't possibly squeeze any more RAM into the podcast over these past few weeks, we have that fucking insane rendition of one of the definitive Paul McCartney standards. That isn't a standard, but yeah, what was that? That was amazing. In the description of the YouTube video for this song, Club Helmbrecker describes itself as, quote, a musical project featuring an informal and fluid collective of musicians. The purpose of the project is to reinterpret hits, hidden gems and rarities by another artist in one day. And yeah, that sounds incredibly interesting. Uh, and perhaps the very fact that this group of artists was such a ragtag collective meant that they were able to perform so freely and with such wild abandon as you just heard there. No need to be coy about this one either, everyone. This is another cover that touched me right away the first time I heard it. I've been loving it ever since. And I really wish this collective had whacked out a few more McCartney covers because they certainly nailed it here. But again, that's the whole point of the group. And the fact that it is such a, a one-off gem does make it all the more special for me. The main point to make here though, and the primary nexus of contrast between this version and the Screamin' Jay Hawkins one, is the amount of effort and time put into recording. I mean, yeah, Screamin' Jay probably definitely didn't want to do it, so I'm going to stop ragging on him for that specifically for now, but come on. The clear joy and passion these players have for the music and the effort they put into the final performance is simply exhilarating. You know, they love the song, they know what to do with it, and they fucking nail it. The main vocalist, Roland Rahane, being an amateur blue-eyed soul singer, manages to deliver a more commanding and impactful vocal, uh, and a more experienced sounding one where he sounds like he knows what he's fucking doing, than the veteran Screaming Jay Hawkins. Like, of course I had the benefit of watching the video footage at the time, but not for one second did I suspect that this soulful, powerful, controlled voice was going to come out of that man's mouth. The backing vocals are also great, I just want to mention them. They really reminded me of the silliness of Linda and the way those vocals work in the original song, whilst also still objectively being sang better and more naturally. 
And on top of everything, just the arrangements and the production are, are just top-notch. Again, compare them to the Screaming J version. Instead of just bashing out the chords just once, here we have these suitably luscious and complex interplays between all the instruments. Like, this is a mad song, and they evoke that. They capture that madness excellently, and just the sheer number of instruments doing their own thing and the layers of melody on top of each other, it, it is so poor. I mean, you heard it just then. It speaks for itself. But, you know, I am glad that we were able to redeem Monk, Berry, Moon, Delight before we move on to our last track. And finally, for our last song, I wanted to do something that itself was an album closer, and thankfully, I have just the perfect track. This was a cover that I discovered a while ago, during one of those uh, deep-dive YouTube binges at 3am, and this is Power Cut from Red Rose Speedway, the Red Rose Speedway medley, and the singer is a fellow by the name of Felipe Pompeo. Right, here we go, one last time. And our last song today is another song that comes from an album that is made up entirely of McCartney covers. This album is called Chaos and Creation in Paul's Backyard. And whilst I won't be reviewing two songs like I did with Suburban Skies, you've actually already heard this guy in this episode, as his cover of Tomorrow was played at the start of this episode. And who knows, maybe you'll hear another one of his tunes at the end after we've closed out. Who knows? Now, I am very well aware that I am predisposed to be very positive towards this song simply because, you know, like Monkberry Moondelight, it's an obscure, not really covered Paul McCartney song that I have a great affection for. But I don't think I really have to argue that hard to explain that Felipe here is just a master of his craft here, and the way he turns power cut from this bouncy piano tune to a really fun, jaunty, Spanish-infused acoustic guitar tune resulted in an amazing listening experience for me. It's really unique. One of the things that made me immediately fall in love with this interpretation was the way that it was so effortlessly able to successfully detach itself from the rest of the medley. Of course, part of why this works so well in the first place is because Power Cut is inherently the strongest of the medley in the four-piece suite, but, you know, it's still impressive how he's able to build up Power Cut into a justifiably longer standalone piece. Of course, though, at the very, very end of the song, uh, when you think it's just going to be Power Cut and it's going to cut to the end, he then starts throwing in all of those 
layers of lazy dynamite and hold me tight and hands of love, all these little references. And I genuinely got the shivers. It was so unexpected. It was amazing. I loved it. Going from the end of the track back to the start, though, I absolutely adored the way he adds the extended intro and runs through that opening build-up coda, you know, a good four or five times. And it really highlighted for me that power cut only works when you do build up to that first drum break and McCartney's first, well, maybe a power cut, you know. So for Felipe to spot that, and find a way to naturally reincorporate that back into the song and alter the song while still retaining a faithful tune and sound and, you know, still being able to reach that same emotional place in the song is such a, a masterful display of craft. His vocal was also pretty damn catchy. I love the way that he double-tracked or even triple-tracked himself through the majority of the song. But the real standout for me was during the closing parts of the song, you know, the Baby, I love you. Me, I love you, sir. Baby, I love you. Like, the growl that he administers here is pure McCartney. Like, it was something between Oh Darling and the end of Come On To Me. And everything about this just felt so faithful to the source material. There's also some fantastic good old-fashioned hand claps and whistling, which is, again, very legitimately McCartney, like it's one of his home demos or something. I mean, come to think of it, the only thing that was missing from this track was the backing vocals in one little bit of the song, and this is just a, a real minor quibble that would only affect me. You know that bit where he sings Miracle, and then he goes, Miracle, Miracle, Miracle. That's not in this version. And I guess maybe it's intentionally left out so that you have to do it at home, which could be quite a fun idea, but you can't have everything, can you? And if that's the only flaw that I can find in this song, then I'll definitely take that. And there we are, folks. This is about as many Paul McCartney covers either of us can tolerate in one sitting, I feel. But what a collection we have had so far, right? I mean, I knew that this was going to be a fun episode to do right from the get-go, but... I thought that was mostly going to be born out of some hilariously negative reviews, and we really haven't had too many of them today, have we? Even the worst of the bunch that we've seen, rather like a lot of Paul's own work, wasn't all that bad, and, you know, they've mostly just been either unimaginative or uninspired, like we haven't had anything truly offensive yet, definitely on the lookout for that. But, conversely, on the other end of the spectrum... We've had quite a few songs that have been pretty fucking good. Uh, quite a few songs that have definitely struck a chord with me. And, you know, a couple of these are, you know, some of my favourite covers ever now. I never thought I was going to be walking away from this episode with so many songs being added to my own Inner McCartney canon playlist. And I can only hope the same can be said for you at the end of this episode. As I mentioned earlier, this original episode was like cut down from like 50 songs, so I'm going to be doing another one of these next week. I've, I've already done a quite a bit of that at the time of recording this, but I definitely want to do a part three as well to round things out. Maybe I'll be doing that after Flowers in the Dirt or before, who knows. But if there are any Paul McCartney covers that I haven't covered today, if there's an obscure rendition of Krina Craw somewhere, if there's a random cover of Warm and Beautiful that I haven't touched on yet, please send them in. I would love to have a whole episode, an entire run of 15, 16 songs, entirely sent in by you, the listener. 
So please send me in every single Paul McCartney cover that you can think of. Not anything that's on the previous compilation albums that I mentioned earlier. Again, I definitely want to touch on those separately at another time. But any one-off Paul McCartney cover that you can think of that I haven't used today, please send it in and I will cover it. I'll give you my thoughts and I'll even give you a little shout-out on that episode as well. Hey, maybe even send in your own thoughts on those songs as well. I'd love to read that out as well but yeah that's the end of our covers episode folks thank you so much for listening it's been really fun putting this episode together for you and i'm not gonna lie i had to make so many tough decisions as to what 16 songs i was gonna be including in this episode and whilst i don't want to feel like a cheesy tv cliffhanger ending where i'm trying to sell the next series there are so many good covers on the next episode as well We are nowhere near scraping the bottom of any barrel. There are so many fun, independent Paul McCartney covers outside of those three albums for us to get into. Like I say, send in your suggestions. I'd love to hear them out. As always, drop in any email inquiries or just say hi at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Send in your Paul McCartney stories. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on whatever podcasting app you are on. And finally, if you like the show, if you want to help support the show, keep the lights running, help keep the show ad-free, please consider becoming one of our Patreon patrons. Thank you, Katrina S. again for becoming our latest patron. And yeah, everyone stick around. Next week we're going to be covering more Paul McCartney covers. I can't wait. I hope you can't either. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out for quite some time by now. So I'm going to start wrapping things up. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry Krishna, folks. Stay safe. Stay hygienic. Keep listening to Paul. See you next time. Play us out, Denny.
you want.